Please open your Bibles to Second Chronicles chapter 14. We will study the chapter tonight, verses 1 to 15. Second Chronicles chapter 14, beginning at verse 1. Listen now to God's holy, inerrant, and life-giving word. Abijah slept with his fathers, and they buried him in the city of David. And Asa, his son, reigned in his place. In his days, the land had rest for ten years. And Asa did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. He took away the foreign altars and the high places, and broke down the pillars and cut down the asherim, and commanded Judah to seek the Lord, the God of their fathers, and to keep the law and the commandment. He also took out of all the cities of Judah the high places and the incense altars, and the kingdom had rest under him. He built fortified cities in Judah, for the land had rest. He had no war in those years, for the Lord gave him peace. And he said to Judah, Let us build these cities and surround them with walls and towers, gates and bars. The land is still ours because we have sought the Lord our God. We have sought him, and he has given us peace on every side. So they built and prospered. And Asa had an army of 300,000 from Judah, armed with large shields and spears, and 280,000 men from Benjamin that carried shields and drew bows. All these were mighty men of valor. Zerah the Ethiopian came out against them with an army of a million men and 300 chariots and came as far as Marishah. And Asa went out to meet him, and they drew up their lines of battle in the valley of Zephathah in Marish, at Marishah. And Asa cried to the Lord his God, O Lord, there is none like you to help. Between the mighty and the weak, help us, O Lord our God, for we rely on you, and in your name we have come against this multitude. O Lord, you are our God, let not man prevail against you." So the Lord defeated the Ethiopians before Asa and before Judah, and the Ethiopians fled. Asa and the people who were with him pursued them as far as Gerar, and the Ethiopians fell until none remained alive, for they were broken before the Lord and his army. The men of Judah carried away very much spoil, and they attacked all the cities around Gerar, for the fear of the Lord was upon them. They plundered all the cities, for there was much plunder in them. And they struck down the tents of those who had livestock and carried away sheep in abundance and camels. Then they returned to Jerusalem. The grass withers, the flowers fall, and the word of our God abides forever. Amen. Father, we thank you that you heard the plea of your people, that it's true there is none like you, none mighty to save, and how filled you are with grace. Well, Lord, this is our history This is our religion. You are our God. And here we find the faith you call us to walk in and the resolve that we would worship you in spirit and in truth. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. In 1544, the Strasbourg reformer Martin Bootser called on John Calvin, who was his colleague in Geneva, to write a defense of the Protestant Reformation for the Holy Roman Emperor Charles V. Charles was summoning what would be a rather significant council of the church in the city of Spire. 
Well, Calvin responded by producing what is considered one of the most powerful works of that century. It was titled The Necessity of Reforming the Church. And in it, Calvin exposed the evils of the medieval church that called for reformation. He explained the measure that the reformers had been taking over those years. And he expressed the urgency that this reformation would be performed more widely. And since Charles was the emperor, basically of Europe, he appealed to him to do it. Now, among the key issues Calvin defended were the doctrine of justification through faith alone, a proper understanding of the sacraments. He spoke against the superstitions that were widely spread. He argued the biblical design for church government. But it's very interesting that his first subject that he argued needed urgently reformation was the worship of the church. Calvin wrote to Charles, I know how difficult it is to persuade the world that God disapproves of all modes of worship, not expressly sanctioned by his word. And he went on to point out that men assume that God will approve anything, he says, that exhibits some kind of zeal and honor for God. That's the argument people make. If it seems fervent to us, it must be acceptable to God. Well, Calvin argued a contrary view. He asked, but since God not only regards as fruitless, but also plainly abominates whatever we undertake from zeal to his worship, if at variance with his command, what do we gain by a contrary course? Well, it's a sign of our times that undoubtedly today, most Bible-believing Christians hold the view that Calvin and the other reformers were opposing, never imagining that human innovation in worship amounts to idolatry. But as Robert Godfrey writes, the issue of idolatry was for Calvin as serious as the issue of works righteousness in justification. Both represented human wisdom replacing divine revelation. Both represented a pandering to human proclivities rather than desiring to please and obey God. Well, Calvin would have had a better response if he had penned his treatise not to Europe's Charles V, but rather to Judah's King Asa. Because Asa performed the kind of worship reform that the reformers were desiring. And we see at the end of this chapter in the prayer he offers before the battle, he states, O Lord, there is none like you. You see, he understood the unique holiness of God. He contrasted that with the sinful folly of the human heart. And Asa knew that this calls for worship that is according to God's word. His example shows how God displays his pleasure to those who worship, granting peace in the days of King Asa. Asa's experience further argues that God protects his people when they call on him in true faith and biblical worship. He answered Asa's plea, help us, O Lord, our God, for we rely upon you. Verse 11, well, after his three-year reign in which King Abijah, through his faith, had defeated the army of King Jeroboam in the north, he died, and he left the southern kingdom to his son Asa. We're told in verse 1 that Abijah slept with his fathers and was buried in the city of David. Now, more or less in Kings and Chronicles, that's code language for whatever issues he had, he was a believer 
That's not going to happen in the experience of all the kings. And that's a general assessment of Abijah. And so his son succeeded him to the throne, but blessedly he also exceeded his father in his faithfulness to the Lord. Uh, The birth of Asa begins a long era of faith and blessing under his 41-year reign, 1 Kings 15.10 tells us that, but then it's extended by the 25-year reign of his even greater son, one of the great figures of the book of Chronicles, King Jehoshaphat. He would reign for 25 years, as 1 Kings 22.42 tells us. Now the chronicler says of Asa that he did what was good and right in the eyes of the Lord his God. Now that is about the highest accolade that you will find in these ancient histories. The only thing they could add is he followed the ways of his father David. And the book of Kings says that very thing about Asa. So this is going to be a good and godly king. Matthew Henry summarizes, he aimed at pleasing God. He studied to approve himself to the Lord. Happy are they that walk by this rule, to do what is right, not in their own eyes, not in the eye of the world, but in the eyes of God. Such is our introduction to King Asa. Now, according to the chronicler, the specific good that Asa performed was the reform of worship within his realm. He performed that kind of worship reform that Calvin and others were hoping for by putting an end to false worship. And first we read in verse 3 that he assailed the practice of idolatry. He took away the foreign altars and the high places and broke down the pillars and cut down the asherim. Richard Pratt suggests that the foreign altars would have been the idolatrous shrines that Solomon had erected for his foreign wives and and where sacrifices were offered to false and foreign gods, we're told in Kings. These gods were like Chemosh, uh, and they would have been Molech. And so these were places where abominations like ritual prostitution, yes, child sacrifice, would have taken place uh, we're told explicitly that's true in 1 Kings 11, 7, and 8 under Solomon's corrupt later years. And these are the idols, the high places with foreign altars that Asa will destroy. Now he also mentions the pillars. It, it could also be translated as the sacred stones, which either would have represented false deities or would have served as sexual representations. Cultic prostitution was so Uh, endemic to these idolatrous worships. Now the Asherim were Asherah poles, which represented, these poles represented Asherah, the divine uh, consort to Baal. And these were places where popular ceremonies take place today. If you see the Maypole and the ceremonies around the Maypole that has its origins in the Asherah pole, also places of ritual sexual sin. Now, all of these idols Asa tore down, and he did so, it seems, because he'd read the Bible. And he learned in Deuteronomy 12, 1 to 3, these words, You shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess serve their gods, on the high mountains, on the hills, and under every green tree. You shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their asherim with fire. This is exactly what Asa did. 
Now, not only did he destroy the idol places, idol worship places, but we read in verse 5 that he also took out of all the cities of Judah the high places and the incense altars. Now, these, not, these were likely not places for the worship of false god, gods, but rather they were dedicated to the worship of the true God prior to the time when Solomon had built the temple in Jerusalem. We're told in 1 Kings 3, verse 2, that Solomon himself would go to these places. It doesn't seem that it was idolatry, but the problem was they were supposed to be removed after the temple was built. The temple, long prophesied, was a place God would provide in that chosen city for worship. These more local high places were to be removed. Well, it's Asa who does that. Now what we see in Asa, here's the reform of worship. He not only honors the first commandment, which forbids the worship of false gods, he also worships, honors the second commandment, which forbids the false worship of the true God. We forget that idolatry involves both of them, the worship of false gods, but also, according to human invention and often with sensual sin, the false worship of the true God. And he, he completed the work left undone by his ancestors. And in this way, he provided a model for reformers in later generations. If you read Calvin's treatise on uh, reforming the church, he doesn't mention Asa particularly, but he mentions kings like him and their reformation of worship. This is the way we are to be. We are to worship only the one true and living God and only as prescribed in his word. Now you say, well, why then don't we worship at a temple that is erected in Jerusalem? Well, the reason is because God's redemption has moved forward since the time of King Asa. And with redemptive history, so the worship of God has moved forward. Now we worship through Jesus Christ. And all the symbolism of the temple, the the ministry, the sacrifices of the temple are fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ We no longer worship at a place, but through a person. You think of what Jesus told the woman at the well in Samaria, the hour is coming and now is here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. The Father is seeking such people to worship him. Jesus has paid for our sins. He's fulfilled all that the temple represented. He's ascended to heaven. He has sent his spirit. The church worships not in a place but through a person, our Savior, the Lord Jesus. Now, you say, well, is there a day coming when worship will change again? Is redemptive history moving forward? And the answer is yes. There will be a time to come when the church will not worship in the way that we do now. That change will not be marked by by evolutions of musical style or, or modes of consumer entertainment. No. It will occur in the return of Jesus when he ushers in the eternal age of glory. Then we will have a new era of worship as of salvation. Revelation 22 says they will see his face. His name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. They will need no lamp of light or sun for the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever. Revelation 22, 5 to 6. Now until Christ returns, however... The church is to worship according to the revelation given by Jesus Christ and his apostles in the New Testament. Church leaders are charged to reform and maintain faithful worship according to the New Testament model. 
Well, Asa's reform of worship not only destroyed the presence of false worship of Judah, upholding both the first and second commandments, but look at verse 4, because very wonderfully, he, in, in a very positive way, he summons the people to embrace the right worship from the heart of the true God. He commanded Judah to seek the Lord, the God of their fathers. Now, by seeking the Lord, Asa meant that believers were to pursue God's favor through sincere prayer and through the worship provided by Solomon's temple. Now, you remember that worship was primarily pictures of Jesus Christ and his saving work, the sacrifices the, that were offered there, the, the lighting of the, of the, of the golden lampstand, the, 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 the altar of incense, the table of showbread. These were pictures of Christ. They were to seek the Lord through sincere prayer and fervent worship that was redemptive in nature. Now, by the way, this language of seeking the Lord will be the dominant motif we see in Asa's reign. In fact, it's the dominant motif of Second Chronicles pretty much from here to the end. But that language will occur 11 times in Asa's account. He sought the Lord. He challenged the people to seek the Lord. We see as well, look at verse 4. He charged the people to keep the law and the commandment. Winfred Corduan writes, it is not enough merely to remove the sites of false worship. The people should observe the entire law, and under Asa, many of them complied. Well, let me say it's very impressive that Asa performed this reformation in worship because of the setting in which he did so. There was no outward threat that caused him to say, we better get our acts together because we need the Lord. Nothing that was going on. There was no internal dissent that he needed to threat. Look at verse 1. In his days, the land had rest for 10 years. So he, he did all this not because of some external problem or some internal unrest. No. He reformed the worship of Judah simply out of reverence for God and because he was obedient to the teaching of God's word. This is why we should worship in a biblical way. And he sets an example for believers today in that he did not insist merely on the proper elements of worship, the right and reverent worship environment. Those are biblical things. We should have a biblical order of worship, the, the, the biblical elements, the preaching of the word, the sacraments, the prayers of the people, all the things that make up for a worship service. But notice that Asa doesn't consider merely getting it right to be a reformed of worship. He says, no, you have to seek the Lord. The reform of worship involves our hearts extended to the Lord, a desire for his glory, a desire to know him better, a desire for his praise and his worship. Such is the reform of worship under godly King Asa. Now, the, reform, the result of this worship reform, the first thing we see here is his reform of worship. But then the passage moves to the blessings that come from true worship, and it's very impressive. The great statement's made in verse 5, and the kingdom had rest under him. And so the kingdom had rest. Now, that's covenant language. If you know your Old Testament, you know that that's a very loaded statement. Now, admittedly, it first of all speaks to a lack of military threat. 
There's no major military threat. There's no one bearing down on him. The people are freed from the bitter experience of war during this 10-year period. Now, that was in part because of the victory won by the faith of his father, Abijah, but it's primarily God's blessing on the faithful worship of his people and their prayers. You remember that God had promised his people this land, the land of Canaan, the promised land, was a place of rest if only they honored him according to his word. And we read in Deuteronomy 12, verse 10, that God through Moses promised to Joshua uh, what would be the blessing of that worship. When you go over the Jordan and live in the land the Lord your God is giving you to inherit, inherit, and he gives you rest from your enemies, you will live in safety. So the rest that they enjoyed was the absence of military interference, but also the the absence of corruption and distraction from false religions of the nations, enabling the people to devote themselves faithfully to the Lord. That was always the ideal of the promised land, the rest of God, the covenant peace he gives, free from threat, free from corruption, that they might draw near to him. Now, interestingly, the New Testament is going to pick up on that language for the experience of those who believe the gospel and worship God through faith in Jesus. We find it in Hebrews 4, verse 3, we who have believed enter that rest. Now we should observe that this rest is not that of idleness. It's not a rest of self-indulgent recreation, but it's the rest of obedience to God and thus the enjoyment of his blessings. Andrew Stewart writes that resting upon the Lord is not inactivity. It's an integral part of an active relationship with the Lord. Resting upon God involves crying out to him in prayer, listening to the Lord in his word, following where he leads. Resting upon the Lord means acting out our faith with a newfound confidence that is instilled by our trust in God. Well, an example of the enjoyment of God's rest is given by Asa. Because in these verses, he devotes himself. It's a time of peace, prosperity, and rest. And what does he do? Does he do things? Does he, does he go on incursions? There's nothing wrong with a little wholesome recreation, but is that what he fills his life with? Self-indulgent activities? No. He devotes himself, devotes himself to building up and strengthening the nation that's under his care. Look at verses 6 and 7. Here's what he did. He built fortified cities in Judah, for the land had rest. He had no war in those years, for the Lord gave him peace. And he said to Judah, let us build these cities and surround them with walls and towers, gates and bars. Now, these are probably the fortifications that Rehoboam had built up a previous generation. And because he didn't trust the Lord, Shishak came out of Egypt and just knocked them all down. He says, well, let's build them back up. That's what we do. We kind of had a bad generation. Let's have a good one. Let's build up that which was lost and forfeited. Let's provide defenses for the nation. Now, there are times when the Lord subjects his church to worldly assault. Certainly, this is happening today in so many places where the church faces severe persecutions. We should always be ready for that kind of situation when it arises. And sometimes the church is just holding on. God delivering us through prayer. But there are other times of relative tranquility where the church is able to do its work of worship and service without interference or harassment. 
And these peaceful times call for the building up of God's kingdom. How do we strengthen the kingdom? How do we strengthen the church? We do it by teaching God's word, by weekly Lord's Day worship in accordance with God's word. We fortify the church by catechizing our children and nurturing them into a mature faith. There are a few things more important in terms of strengthening the church than the raising up of our children in in gospel-centered homes. And they learn the truths of God's word and of his teaching. We build up the walls of God's house by witnessing the gospel to unbelievers, inviting them to church. Few things will more encourage your pastor. It happened to me today than for someone to say, I've got a friend coming to church today. I've invited them. That's building up the walls of the church. And I have a promise. You bring them, I will preach Christ to them. And the church, they will hear of Jesus and of God's word. This is building up the household of God. We build up God's house by praying praying for the lost, praying for God's work in the church. And Matthew Henry summarizes Asa's whole approach with the words, let us build, let us be doing. That's the response of Asa to the rest that God had given Judah. Now, Acts 9.31 gives a, an identical uh, depiction In a similar period of the early church, it's what we should emulate today, Acts 9.31, so the church throughout all Judah and Galilee and Samaria had peace and was being built up. The same pattern, peace, rest, that we build up the church. And they walked in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, and so they multiplied. Well, Asa not only fortified the nation against attack in the future, but he raised up and trained a rather large and apparently capable army, verse 8. And Asa had an army of 300,000 from Judah, armed with large shields and spears, and 280,000 men from Benjamin that carried shields and drew bows. All these were mighty men of valor. Now, it's not very likely at all that that's a professional full-time army. It's the nature of the militia. That's the manhood. That's the kind of church we not just specialists, but the people are, are, are valiant in their faith. This is the militia of Judah, 300,000, of Benjamin, 280,000. Now, what's interesting is it looks like the forces of Judah were trained and equipped for offensive warfare. They had large shields and for spears. That's hand-to-hand combat. But the men of Benjamin specialized in defense. They had smaller shields and they had bows. Well, the church at rest today should equip for both. We need evangelists and missionaries to carry God's word, the gospel, out into the world. We need teachers to protect the church from error and false doctrine. The church at rest today must Raise up skilled ministers. We should provide books of learning and devotion that will benefit believers for future generations. We found schools and colleges and seminaries, publishing houses, missionary societies. Why? So the kingdom of Christ will be equipped to advance. Well, Asa's period of rest lasted for many years, and a lot was accomplished during that time. But best of all, look at verse 7. He insisted on giving the Lord the glory of it all. He never lost sight of the grace of God, of what they needed to be trusting. Asa calls to the people, the land is still ours because we have sought the Lord our God. We have sought him 
and he has given us peace on every side. Salvation by grace through faith. We need to seek the Lord, but he will give it to us. He has the power to do so. He has grace to give us. This was Calvin's appeal to Charles V during the Reformation. He says, look, we need an end to war. We need unity. We need peace, prosperity. The way to do that is not false doctrine. It's faithful teaching. It's not worldly superstition and, and, and paganism in our worship. It's biblical worship faithful gospel teaching this will bring god's blessing and yet we should note that even when we find ourselves in the midst of a generation perhaps a nation that has turned its heart away from the god chasing the idols of the world even in such a time a time like ours the christian church the christian home can still enjoy the peace and rest of god within our walls and homes It was Jesus who gave the promise to those who trust him and follow in faith. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give to you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. Like Asa in his time of rest, we can enjoy the covenant blessings of God through faith in Jesus. We can grow strong. There's no reason that whatever happens in the world. There's no reasons that the Christian people cannot raise up a godly generation. Marriages that are strong and loving, you know, like like we're taught in the Bible, friendships, lifestyles that bring peace. Look at verse 7. So they built and prospered. Those words may be spoken of any generation of God's people in any setting as we worship him and trust in his word. Well, by God's will, this period of rest came to an end. It's the third part of our chapter. We see Asa's reform of worship. We see the benefits of that true worship and faith. But now we're going to see God's defense of his faithful worshipers because an invasion finally comes. It's told in verse 9, Zerah, the Ethiopian, came out against them with an army of a million men and 300 chariots and came as far as Merishah. Now, the fact is that for all the blessings that come through true faith and worship in Jesus' name, we still live in a world that is characterized by evil and opposition to God and his people. Now, scholars struggle to nail down this Zerah, the Ethiopian, who is he? Well, the best theory, I think, is that he was a war leader who marshaled the vast forces of Cush and Libya and served the new ruler of Egypt. Earlier it was Shishak, the king of Egypt. It's actually now his son, Osorkon I. And by the way, Cush, that's, it's called Cush, was a rather indefinite geographical reference in the Old Testament. We tend to associate it with Ethiopia. That's why the translation is there. But it could also be Libya. It was, it was the southern lands around Egypt. And there was a mass of armed and militant men from which an army could be recruited. We read here, he actually had an army of a million men. Now, where does that come from? Well, the Hebrew says a thousand thousands. Add that up, quick math, it's a million. But as we remember, with all the numbers that are given in Chronicles, also Kings, that the word thousands is also used for a military unit, a company, or a regiment will also be given that name. So it could be that what he's referring to is an army with a thousand regiments. Well, that's a really big army. 
And however you do the math, it's twice the size of aces. That, that's the point. It's a two-to-one advantage. Not only that, but Zera has the most up-to-date mobile weaponry. He has 300 chariots. And so he advances up the coast. He crosses over to Merishah outside Hebron in southern Judah. And there, Asa will marshal his forces to meet the foe. Verse 10, they drew up their lines of battle in the valley of Zephathah at Merishah. Now, you may be wondering, how does this happen? I thought God was giving them peace. What, what's, what's the deal? They trusted the Lord. They reformed their worship. They, they honor the Lord. He, he gives all the glory to God. What happens here? Is God judging them? Well, it doesn't seem that he is. And the, the reality is that trouble does not always come as some form of judgment or chastisement from God, but often it results simply from the wicked nature of the world. And so it is that unwanted wars will be forced upon otherwise peaceful nations. Elections will usher in leaders who may not have a positive agenda when it comes to the expression of religious liberty, may not have policies that are going to be positive for the Christian church. Hypothetically, that kind of thing can happen in a nation where the church exists. And and so Christians should not be dismayed when events, in this case, this is pretty bad, the invasion of Zerah the Ethiopian with a million men or a thousand regiments, this mass modern army, they blow into Judah. Why should we not be surprised? Because God tells us that he does this. He gives us peace for some purposes, but he also gives us trials. Peter says in 1 Peter 1 to 7, these have come for the strengthening of your faith. He tests and refines our faith through trials. Leslie Allen writes, crisis is a fact of life. And yet God is able to deal with crises when they come. For the believer, a crisis is an opportunity to prove God's power in a new way. It's exactly the perspective we should have. We've got another invasion, a new opportunity to trust God's power in a new way. God hasn't changed. He's going to deliver us in a new and wonderful way. Now, in times of peace and rest, we should strengthen for days of war. But when they come, like Asa, we should confront them in a spirit of faith. He marches his army to face the enemy at the valley of Merishah. Now, he was not only prepared as well as he could be militarily, but even more importantly, Asa was prepared spiritually for the challenge that had come. His his army was not likely, I I don't know, sometimes an army can overcome two to one, but this is pretty bad. They've got the twice the numbers and the better equipment. You see, Asa saw, like David, in another valley with the giant Goliath intimidating the people of God, he saw another power on the field. And with his army gathered before him, where he's going to pray to the Lord, God is the source of his might and defense. Look at verse 11. He prays to the Lord his God. Now the prayer that he offers was going to be a paradigm in the book of Second Chronicles. We're going to see this again and again. A point is being made when we read the prayer that Asa prays here. We should pray this prayer ourselves in similar times. And we're going to see that Jehoshaphat follows his father's example. A couple of generations later, Hezekiah will offer a prayer very much like this prayer in Second Chronicles 14. You see, we should learn from the deliverance that God has given to previous faithful 
praying generations of Christians, and we will know how to respond when perils come. Indeed, I think one of the great benefits of studying Second Chronicles is these prayers. When I was excited about preaching this book, it was because Asa's in it. And then we're going to get Jehoshaphat. That's really going to be great. But what's particularly great are these prayers that are models for us. Well, let's look at his prayer. It has three parts. And not surprising, the first consists of adoration to the greatness of an all-sufficient God. Verse 11, O Lord, there is none like you to help between the mighty and the weak. Let me just point out that he does not argue his merits. He doesn't argue the relative righteousness of himself or Judah versus Zerah and his barbarian horde. See, there's no, we, we don't pray that way. We don't come to God saying, Lord, I pray because we, we deserve it. Because the truth is, and God knows that we need to know it, that we don't deserve his help. We are sinners relying entirely on God's grace. And so he argues not on good works, not on merits, not like the Pharisee in the parable that Jesus gives, and the Pharisee and the tax collector, not because he is better than this worse sinner. No, no, no. Asa appeals to the singular character of God as a sovereign who strengthens the weak because he is merciful to his people in need. This is how there is none like you. Mighty, sovereign, but filled with grace for those who call upon his name. He seems to have gained his insight from the prayer that Solomon prayed. His great-grandfather Solomon prayed on the day when the temple was dedicated. Here's how Solomon prayed. If your people go out to battle against their enemies by whatever way you send them, and they pray to you towards this city that you've chosen and this house I have built for your name, all of which is a picture of Christ, praying in Christ's name, then hear from heaven their prayer and their plea and maintain their cause. Well, see, Asa knew that was true. He knew the Lord is a unique God among the so-called deities in that he's real. He hears the prayers of his people. He strengthens them in weakness. He delights in showing mercy. First, adoration in faith. Secondly, he asks for help. Here's the supplication, verse 11. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rely on you. And in your name we have come against this multitude. Cyril Barber summarizes, he called upon the omnipotent God to help the powerless against the powerful. Now that's a prayer that Christians from time to time are going to pray. We're the powerless in worldly terms. The enemy is powerful, but God is more powerful still. Now the key words are, we rely upon you. And he was able to add to that, that we've come to fight for the name of the Lord. You know, he might have negotiated it's going to be, read First Kings, Second Kings. Lots of evil, wicked kings are going to do that. There's a temptation today. The world's looking hostile. Let's accommodate them. What do they want us to give? There goes the, we'll give you the doctrine of creation if you won't take away from us the cross of Christ. No, they're going to take it all away from us if we do that. Not a strategy of accommodation. Doesn't, let's go out and meet with Zara. See if he has terms. No, we rely on you. And we're going to be steadfast in your name. He's able to pray in that way. 
And he places himself at the disposal of God. He trusts in his mercy. He relies wholly on his might to deliver. Now, centuries later, there's three young men who'd be in a faraway country, and they knew the story of Asa. Their names were Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and their situation was even worse. Nebuchadnezzar sets up the golden idol and says, I suggest that you bow down and worship it. By the way, if you don't, I've heated up a furnace. I'm going to throw you into it. And in the same spirit of Asa's prayer, it needs to be the spirit of our prayers when the day comes those three faithful Jews said, our God whom we serve is able to deliver us. See, see, we rely on you, Asa said. And they said to Nebuchadnezzar, he's able to deliver us from your burning fiery furnace. He will deliver us from your hand, O king. But even if not, be it known to you, O king, we will not serve your gods. We will not worship the golden image you have set up. Daniel three seventeen to 18. Not negotiation, not accommodation, reliance on a God in whose name we stand. Well, third, Asa prays then for God to uphold the glory of his own name. You're going to see this feature throughout these prayers. You see it in the book of Isaiah. O Lord, you are our God. Let no man prevail against you. It's your name that's on the line. It's your glory. It's your claim that you're a true and living God, that you hear your people, that you deliver them. This is what's on the line. And see, Asa goes, look, I brought my army out here, but the truth is, Lord, it's not my battle to fight. See, there's the theme for us to remember. We're going to serve the Lord. We're going to marshal ourselves. We're going to show up. But the battle belongs to the Lord. The victory is his alone to give. By the way, doesn't that preserve us from the temptation to sin? Because it's God's cause, we can lie. Because it's it's a good, righteous cause, we can defame people's reputation. No, no, the battle belongs to the Lord. We do his will. We speak his word. We rely upon him. We pray. It's his to give the victory. Edith G. Cherry placed the sentiment of Asa's prayer in a wonderful hymn that we sing today and we imbibe of his spirit. We rest on thee, our shield and our defender. We go not forth alone against the foe. Strong in thy strength, safe in thy keeping tender. We rest on thee and in thy name we go. Well, it's a little wonder what happened that God answered this prayer because he is the true God. He is omnipotent. He is merciful so that we can say to him, there is none like you. He's the very God Judas King trusted him to be. And the account's actually very brief. We're not even given any of the details except the important one that God defeated the foe. He defended his people, verses 12 to 13. So the Lord defeated the Ethiopians before Asa and Judah. The Ethiopians fled. Asa and the people who were with them pursued them as far as Gerar. And the Ethiopians fell until none remained alive. They were broken before the Lord and his army. And if the Bible is true, so the Lord will always defend his church as it is strengthened by true worship and fervent faith prayer, and the word of God. That's the confidence that Paul gave in Romans chapter 8. He applies Asa's confidence to the gospel age of the church. And he admits, Paul says, I admit there will be tribulation, distress, persecution. 
He goes on, famine, nakedness, danger, and sword, Romans 8.35. It's true, as the followers of Jesus, Paul writes, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered, Romans 8.36. So it has often been in church history. You think of the godly Huguenots who were slaughtered and driven out of their country. Why? True worship and the faithful teaching of God's word. You think of the covenanters who are our linear ancestors in the church. They came to the North Carolinas, and this church is a descendant of their churches. The covenanters were slaughtered by the Stuart kings. Why? True worship, the faithful teaching of the word of God. But you see, Paul assures us that God provides not defeat, but victory through faith in Christ. He says, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. Why is that because no, nothing will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. All of that is Romans eight thirty six to 39. Well, the account of Asa's battle against Zerah, the Ethiopian, concludes with a great spoil gathered up by God's servants. Verses 13 and 14, the men of Judah carried away very much spoil. They attacked all the cities around Gerar for the fear of the Lord was upon them. They plundered all the cities. There was much plunder in them. So great was the rout that they pursued the Egyptian army far to the south. They ransacked their cities. They bring back an abundance. And then, verse 15, they returned to Jerusalem. Well, my friends, our plunder today is in keeping with the spiritual nature of the church and the gospel mission that is given to us by Jesus. What's the nature of our army? What's our warfare? Jesus said, go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And so the spoils of the Christian church are not the riches of the world. We neither need nor desire them, but rather the redemption of sinners through faith in Christ's blood, and God gives the converts to a faithful church that relies upon him and stands in the day of battle. Paul sounded our call to battle. He said those great words. I actually can't get them out of my mind from our series in Colossians. Him we proclaim. That's our call. And he says, we have the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Ephesians six seventeen. So for Christians today, times of trouble, maybe times of assault, they may come. But what do they call for? They call for a response of gospel love and the message of forgiveness of sin in the name of Jesus. And in that warfare, we call on the same God who heard and delivered Judah in the days of King Asa. For us, as for him, the battle is waged through true and faithful worship, combined with fervent prayer and the teaching soundly of biblical truth. And the Apostle John tells us a truth that will abide in all generations, particularly for those who are able to pray. See, we need to be able to pray as Asa did. Help us, O Lord our God, for we rely on you. And the Apostle John gives the answer to that. This is the victory that overcomes the world, even our faith. Amen. Well, Father, we thank you for this wonderful depiction, 
the reformation of worship, the, the strengthening of the church and the rest that you give, and then your power to deliver and even give spoils to your church. Father, help us to understand how this applies in the gospel age of Christ. We're the same people. You're the same God. It's the same world. Give us the courage, the reliance upon you that we will not fear, we will not negotiate, we will not accommodate. But what we will do is we will tell others of Jesus. We will wield the weapons of the Holy Spirit, prayer and the word of God, a worshiping people serving in the gospel age of Christ. Oh, Lord, give us the victory that you would have glory and that many would be saved. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.